All right, Genesis chapter 43. The title of this evening's message is A Test for a Jealous Heart. A Test for a Jealous Heart. I don't know if you've experienced a case of jealousy yourself. Uh, Maybe it was in uh, a budding relationship that you had uh, back in the day or some other scenario. Maybe it was uh, guys for you out there, maybe jealous of somebody else's talents or abilities in regards to uh, an athletic uh, ability. Or uh, maybe it was those of you you that play an instrument. Maybe you're the second or or third chair and, and you're looking at that first chair playing that instrument. And man, they just have it all together, they can seemingly play it flawlessly, and you have a moment of jealousy. Have you been there? I'm I'm raising my hand. We all, and at some point in our life, have experienced jealousy, right? It's one of those just base level human nature, part of our depravity and sinful being, Jealousy comes and it goes really at all times and in all stages of life and in different ways. Jealousy is something that uh, if not uh, identified and kept in check and repented of and given over to the Lord and jealousy can cause so much difficulty in relationships and that jealousy and that envy can Uh, progress even into bitterness. And we've talked about that even in our Joseph narrative as we've considered the relationship between Joseph and his other brothers. Ultimately, we are where we are today in our story because of what? Jealousy. It was those brothers who were jealous of Joseph's standing in their home and the favoritism that Jacob bestowed upon Joseph, And as such, they did what? They attempted to take matters into their own hand and they let that jealousy and that envy that progressed into bitterness. Ultimately, it progressed even to hatred and a heart to murder their brother. It started with jealousy. And it's interesting that Joseph knows that and he identified that in their own story. And here we are in chapter 43. And as he continues for now having this second reunion with his brothers coming down from Canaan back to Egypt, he is providing a test for these brothers to determine is jealousy still running rampant in their hearts and in their lives. And he's going to do that by introducing a new character into our story. Well, not a new character, but new to our setting here is Benjamin, for the first time, is going to be making this journey down to Egypt, and he will leverage that relationship with Benjamin to truly give insight into where their brother's hearts are at. Have they truly repented? Are they being stirred up? Have they changed? Are they truly honest men, as they appealed to last week in chapter number 42? So here we are in Genesis 43, if you'll remember with me, we spent a bulk of our time discussing this idea that God uses the circumstances of life to do what? To bring about his perfect and sovereign plan in this world. So God's plan was no doubt a big part of our message last week. And because chapter 43 is really an extension of chapter 42, God's plan and his sovereign will is going to continue to be a core theme in uh, our sermon, in our text, even here today in chapter 43. We observed last week that God often uses the circumstances of life in three ways as a means to reveal his plan, two, as a prerequisite to participate in his plan, and three, as the impetus to trusting his plan. Uh, So again, these two chapters are extension of one story. Uh, The brothers have come down to Egypt. Why? Because of the famine. Right. They had uh, Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream. There was going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And that famine has spread across the known world. Right. I'm just giving us some context or minus where we're at. And Jacob has heard that there are there are resources and food down in Egypt. He sent the brothers down to investigate, to buy food and to bring it back. And we know that Joseph identified them. He kept Simeon back. He gave them a test. If you're truly honest men, 
Uh, and you say that you have a younger brother and you say that uh, you are all of, of one father of Jacob, then bring your younger brother back. And if your story's true, I'll release Simeon. I'll give you food and you can go back here. That's where we are uh, here today in chapter number 43. It's all about God's sovereign plan. And here's the thing, friends. It was all about God's sovereign plan in chapter 42. It will be in chapter 43. Let's fast forward to October of 2020. Here's the thing. It's still all about God's sovereign plan. Nothing has changed. There's not a new focus. There's not a new agenda. There's not something else that we should be looking for or pursuing. It was true then all the way back in Genesis. It was true today. That our life, our circumstances, everything that is going on in this crazy and chaotic world when it seems like it's just spiraling out of control, guess what? God is still on his throne. He's still sovereign. He's still working out his perfect plan of salvation in this world. Yes, even today with all the craziness that is going on, it is still all about God's sovereign plan. And here's the spoiler alert for the future. It will always still be about God's sovereign plan. Why? I'm glad you asked. This brings us to our big idea of Genesis 43. This is why it will always be about God's sovereign plan. The big idea of chapter 43 and really 42, they're connected. But chapter 43, here's our big idea. God desires for his covenant people to participate in his sovereign plan to bring about redemption and reconciliation in this world. I'll read that one more time for you. I see some people frantically trying to take notes and uh, we don't have it on the screen tonight. So I will read that one more time for you. God desires for his covenant people to participate in his sovereign plan and to bring about redemption and reconciliation in this world. I love this reality that God desires for us to be a part of his plan. That is, that is beautiful, right? I mean, God is big enough. He's the creator of all things. He's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. He has uh, always existed and always will exist. He doesn't need us. Little reality check there. He doesn't need us to bring about his perfect plan of redemption and reconciliation. But God chooses to use us despite ourselves. Certainly we complicate things. Uh, many times and how we steward or the lack thereof uh, his plan of reconciliation, redemption. But despite our sinful nature, God desires to use mankind to bring about his plan of redemption. And we see that unfolding page after page in the book of Genesis as we're nearing these these final few chapters. So God desires to use his covenant people to bring about the we could even say the realization of his sovereign plan in this world. These sons of Israel or Jacob needed to be brought to a place of not just recognizing that God was there, recognizing that God was working, but they needed to be brought to a place of actually participating in this plan. Why? Because that is God's plan. That his covenant people participate in the realization of his sovereign plan on this earth. So we saw the beginning phases of that process begin to unfold as God uses this test that is set before them by Joseph to stir the hearts of these brothers. Right, do you remember that? The beginning of chapter 42, what, they, what were they doing? They were just sitting around staring at each other, doing nothing, feeling sorry for themselves, feeling lost without direction, without hope, in the midst of a phantom, famine, food running out. God met them at that place and he is attempting to stir their hearts and to bring about a heart of repentance that God will use in the days ahead to ultimately establish the tribes of Israel. So we saw the beginning phases of this process. Joseph sets this test before them and they begin uh, to come to this place of acknowledging their wrongs, their, their sins of the past. 
They're coming to grips with this reality that, hey, you know what? We failed and we failed big time. There's blood on our hands, so to speak. We have wronged our brother Joseph. They've come to that real realization in chapter 42 and God is going to continue to work to soften their hearts and to bring about this incredible work of reconciliation in the midst of this family. When you talk about dysfunctional families, it doesn't get much worse than Jacob's household. It doesn't. I mean, it is about as dysfunctional as you can get. But guess what? God uses and chose to use this family with all their mess, with all their baggage, with all their horrible choices. He used them to continue and further his plan of redemption in this world. That's beautiful. So we see for the first time in over 20 years, these brothers are grappling with the sins of their past. And it's through this process of get this exposure through the process of pressure and difficulty and testing that God moves these sons of Israel. He stirs their heart through exposure, pressure and difficulty. That's what the brothers would not be where they're at in 43 had they not had the pressure and the difficulty and the points of exposure. Let me ask you this. Is it human nature for us to pursue exposure of our sin? Is it human nature to say, hey, you know what? Sign me up for some difficulty in my life. I need some of that. It's not right. We try to avoid exposure. We try to limit difficulty, right? Because we want to pursue the path of least resistance. This is human. This is human nature. But friends, let me tell you, God does some of his greatest work. He accelerates our spiritual maturity in the Lord and in the word through the vehicles of what? Exposure and pressure, difficulty and testing. And so, friends, if you have the opportunity to embrace those things in your life, do it. Know that on the other side of exposure, God is going to do something big. Know that on the other side of testing and difficulty, God is there and he's going to shape you and mold you. He's going to develop you. He's going to give you a testimony that can be used for his glory in other people's lives. So don't run from it. Embrace it. And this is what the brothers are experiencing right here. God's grace has met them where they have fallen to his mercy has been readily available and we see it continue to unfold even into chapter 43 as he has been faithful to provide for his covenant people. It's refreshing to be reminded in the book of Genesis of God's faithfulness to his covenant people despite many times their unfaithfulness. And don't we many times fall into this Um, pseudo works-based salvation that we feel like, hey, you know what? God will only accept us if we do something for him. God is faithful to his people even when we are unfaithful. I believe that. God initiates, he sustains, and he maintains that relationship with his covenant people. It is nothing that I have done or will do that is deserving of a relationship with God. He sought me out. I was the sheep that wandered from the flock, and he ran after me, left the 99, scooped me up and brought me back into his fold. Friends, this is God's mercy and grace in our life, and we see that unfold over and over again in the pages of Genesis. So friends, I hope you will lean into this story tonight with me because it's here that we see the gospel. No, we're not going to see John 3, 16. We're not going to see Romans 6, 23 and Romans 3, 23. We're not going to see these explicit gospel verses that we see in the New Testament. But I hope through Joseph and this Christological figure that you can see Christ and you can see his faithfulness and you can see him pursuing a remnant despite themselves. The gospel is here. And friends, I hope we'll see it this evening. It's, it's right here in Genesis 43. I hope that the reality that God is continuing to work out the story of redemption through hope 
and fulfillment of the gospel from generation to generation. I hope that that reality is never becoming mundane to you in your life. But I hope the gospel can get you excited still yet today. I hope the fact and reality that I was dead in my sins, but God, who was rich in mercy, sought me out and saved me. I hope that still puts a sparkle in your eye. I hope that that's never just a a date on the calendar in the past and you're going on living your life the way you want to. Oh, that that would never be said of us. But the wonder and the mystery of the gospel would stir us even today, tonight. We see it right here in Genesis. He is still working. Still saving in our families, our marriages, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, in the seemingly insignificant, difficult circumstances of life. God is working to move you and me off of the bench and to become an active participant in his sovereign plan of redemption. That's what this story right here in Genesis 43 is all about. God working to move these brothers off the bench and to move them into the playing field and for them to be active participants in this story of redemption. He is working in the lives of these brothers to stir them. I hope he is working in your life through this story as it unfolds week after week to stir you up to a place of active participation. So friends, let me say this. There should be great hope If you're here in your seat this evening, these are much more comfortable chairs than what we normally have. Pews or or not, they're padded and and we're thankful for them. We're thankful to have this building. Aren't you thankful for this? To be able to meet, to gather. Schools being shut down for outside uses. We're thankful for this church and that God has allowed us to meet and gather to worship the Lord. But friends, I want to remind us there's great hope for you this evening. If you find yourself coming to church and you're weary, You're the brothers back in 42 and you're still sitting in your huddle, staring at each other, doing nothing. And however you got there, why ever you got there, that was horrible English. Um, Regardless of that, you're there. Trial, difficulty, relationship, conflict, discouragement, financial, job, health, you name it. You're weary. You're discouraged. You're sitting on the bench and you feel like God is maybe working in other people and in other ways, other parts of the world. But yet, man, you feel like just an empty, deep, dark well. And there is hope this evening for you that you could be stirred up by the grace of God through the preaching of the word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He could work in your heart and life even this evening. God wants to meet you right where you're at this evening through the testimony of the word, the preaching of the word. He desires to fan the flickering embers of your heart. And as you leave this place, he would desire to use you and me to bring about redemption and reconciliation to this world. This is the joy and the hope of every disciple to deny oneself, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. So uh, I'm going to apologize in advance. That was an extended introduction. I'm, a, I'm aware. Uh, I'm mindful of time. Trust me. I've got three simple points this evening. We will work the, through them rather quickly. Uh, I noted that there's a lot of parallels in 42 and 43, so I won't go through all those details of, of where there, there is some overlap. But uh, I want us to anchor our hearts around this reality that there is a sovereign plan being worked out among us And God desires us to be plugged in and engaged in an active participant in it. So the question that I want you to ask yourself as we work through this text is this. Am I actively participating in God's sovereign plan to bring about redemption and reconciliation in this world? I'm not saying, do you know academically about God's sovereign plan? Do you know some cool things about redemption and reconciliation? I'm not saying, are are you aware of how God is maybe using other people or churches, pastors, missionaries, underground church and other parts of, I'm not saying any of that. I'm asking, are you actively engaged in participating in God's sovereign plan to bring about redemption and reconciliation in this world, did you, did you see the subtle nuance of difference there? Amen. It's not just about knowing about these things. It's about am I engaged by God's grace in them? Because that is his plan. 
regardless of whether you're type A, B, C, whatever personality profile you might have, regardless of your skill sets, your giftings, how confident or lack of confidence you have, God wants to use you for his glory to make disciples in your sphere of influence. He's gifted you with specific gifts to meet specific needs, to be deployed in the church in this world, to bring about his glory. And friends, we can't just go week after week just going through the motions of a mundane, complacent Christian life. God wants more for you. He wants more for me. He wants more for this church. He wants us to share the hope of Jesus. And friends, we won't do that if we're not aware of and actively participating in this plan. So the first point we're going to look at concerning participating in God's sovereign plan is this. That when we do, when we participate in God's sovereign plan, it strengthens our faith. It strengthens our faith. So here we are in chapter 43. Uh, Pastor Andy read through the entire text. I'm not going to do that again uh, for the sake of time. Some time has passed. They came uh, from Canaan to Egypt, got the food. Simeon's left. They've gone back. They confronted their father the first time at the end of 42 about the need to bring Benjamin back so that we can get Simeon back. And Jacob essentially says, I can't do it. I've lost one son. He doesn't know why or how. Obviously, his assumption still at this point, 20 plus years later, is that Joseph was killed by wild beast. They brought his coat of many colors, torn apart, spattered in blood. And the brothers sold the story to their father. Ultimately, he sold into slavery down in Egypt. And we know all the details there. So they've confronted their father. We've got to bring Benjamin back to this ruler in Egypt or they're going to keep Simeon. He's questioned our story. We have to prove that we are honest men. Jacob, we got to take Benjamin. You remember Reuben giving this uh, plea to Jacob that, hey, if, if, I, if I don't follow through with this, you can, you can take my sons and kill them. I mean, who would say that? But Reuben said it, right? And he's, he's, he's kind of fired up about this reality. Jacob essentially says, I can't bear to lose another son. Therefore, what do they do? They simply do nothing again. We don't know exactly how much time has passed, but we know all the food that they were brought back from Egypt is now starting to dwindle. So now Jacob is confronted with the reality that, hey, food's running out. We need to make a decision. And this final point from last week carries into the first point of this week. Last week, we were reminded that God uses the circumstances of life as the impetus of trusting his plan. Remember, the impetus was simply a force that makes something happen or happen more quickly. So God used this famine and this life or death scenario to help these brothers to begin to look outward and recognize the presence of God among them. And now God is going to begin to strengthen this budding faith through additional testing and difficulty right here in chapter 43. This is the reality of every Christian life. It is always a walk of what? Faith. Trusting God in the midst of not certainty, but uncertainty. Following when the destination is unsure, believing when all hope seems lost. This is the essence of the Christian life. This is what we are called to as disciples of Christ. Do you remember Hebrews 11, chapter 1? It gives us that simple Definition reminds us what faith truly is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So here we have in these opening verses a struggle to trust in God's provision and protection concerning this requirement that Joseph made on the brothers to bring Benjamin. Or else, look at me at verse 3. Joseph promises that you shall not see my face. You shall not see my face. 
This warning from Joseph to the brothers, for all they know, is no empty threat. Again, second only to Pharaoh, this is the highest ranking official in Egypt. When he says something, you can take it to the literal bank and figurative blank, bank, whatever we want to call it. it it's, it's truth, right? So when Joseph said, hey, you better not come back without Benjamin, they took note of that. And they weren't going to go back to Egypt unless they had Benjamin in their possession. Let's not forget that Simeon is, is where he's, he's back there in Egypt, not in the Holiday Inn with, with great accommodations. He was take, taken captive in prison, right? He's, he was tied up and bound. The brothers saw this happen. And so Simeon, for however long they waited to come back to Egypt with Benjamin, Simeon's been there in prison. A shop, Jacob. Just let your... Let your son just suffer there in prison while you decide what you're going to do, right? Uh, but regardless, that's, that's what happened. He's held there for collateral as a test to the brother's sincerity and the integrity of their story. So verse 36 of chapter 42, look at me just real quick to remind us. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. So Jacob, Israel has this kind of woe is me. Hey, everything is stacked up against me. Man, I just can't take another blow. He's wrestling with this reality of potentially losing his final son of this beloved, uh, his beloved wife, Rachel. And it seems that Jacob was fully settled. But Circumstances have changed and God is using these circumstances to be the impetus of their faith. The food has gone and they're back in these desperate circumstances. And so Jacob has no other choice but to give in. But before he does, he highlights the reality that his sons have been the reason that all of this struggle and difficulty has been brought upon them. Look at me at verse number six. Jacob has another woe is me type of moment. He says, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? I mean, come on, guys. Jacob is essentially saying, why did you tell the truth? We should all know in this situation, less is more. You just had to open up your big mouth. You had to share the whole story. And now this ruler in Egypt knows that you got a younger brother. He's hanging that over your head and Guess what? I've got to part with my younger, my youngest son because of you. He's pointing the finger back outward. Guys ever been there before? Pointing fingers outward. Blaming. Deflecting attention away from your ownership of the problem and trying to point it on to somebody else. I don't know about you, but I unfortunately do that often. I guess human nature as well. I don't know who said it. I don't know who's the owner of this one, but somebody once said, if you point the finger, you got three pointing back at you, right? Um, it's a reality. This is what Jacob is doing. So he's having this kind of meltdown moment and his sons kind of let him have that moment. And as he's melting down and having this woe is me, this blame game, we have Judah now stepping up to convince his father after Reuben seemed to have just not get the job done with his discussion and dialogue with Jacob at the end of 42. There was no action that was taken based off of Reuben's appeal. So Judah now steps up. He chimes in. He does so by appealing once again to the most basic elements of survival. If we do not do this, we all will what? die. Judah points out now that they have families of their own and these little ones, as they describe in our text, will also die if we do not take action. We have to move. We have to do something. There's, we have no choice. The food is running out. The risk is not just about Benjamin. It's about your entire household. And these little ones that are among us. 
So Judah makes that appeal. It's also interesting to note that uh, Judah points out in verse number 10, this delay. They're all aware of this fact that we didn't take action. We have waited. We have consumed all this food and we have done nothing to resolve the issue at hand. So verse number 10, Judah points out, if we had not delayed, we would have returned twice. Come on, Jacob. Let's let's make some decisions. Let's take some ownership. Let's be a leader. Let's not be selfish. Let's not grasp on to what we want, but rather let's pursue God's will. Judah certainly has now some urgency behind him. He takes it on himself to absorb all of the blame if harm comes to Benjamin. He's trying to now relinquish any guilt or pressure or burden of making this decision from Jacob. He's literally holding his father's hand through this process and trying to lead him to a place of realizing that we got to move. So we have Judas stepping up, taking responsibility, and his appeal to Jacob was convincing He realized that time was running out. And so what does Jacob do? He agrees to let Benjamin go. So a couple comments. It's interesting that once Jacob finally came to the realization of the decision, you see his demeanor change. Um, We see in in these verses following verse number 10, we see Jacob uh, giving some advice. And he seems to, okay, I had my meltdown. I had my woe is me moment. You're right. We've got to take action. I'll agree to let Benjamin go. And what does Jacob do? Although he seems reluctant to get on board, he he with his plan, he offers his advice to his sons. He gives them some good wisdom. He says, hey, you know what? If we've got concerns about this money that was supposed to be given for the food that was somehow still in our bags and arrived back in our possession here in Canaan, what do we need to do? Don't just take that money back, but double it. He's looking at providing restitution for this potential oversight or wrong that has uh, that has taken place among them. So he's trying to give them opportunity, leverage tools in their tool belt to go back to this ruler in Egypt and be able to navigate through this conflict. So he has hope that they'll be able to resolve this dispute. And here we see for the first time beyond his seemingly worldly wisdom Jacob comes back to a realization that God is working. God is the one that can, that can do this work, and he's the only one that can resolve this conflict. So Jacob acknowledges the need that they have before God Almighty. We introduced um, the first instance of this many, many chapters ago, but right here Jacob uses the Hebrew word El Shaddai to refer to God as God Almighty. It is only God that is able, that is mighty in all of his ways. Remembering God as creator that spoke all things in existence. If God can do that, he certainly can handle the troubles of our day and our time and to resolve this conflict between a foreign ruler. And there is great hope, friends, in our time of struggle and difficulty and uncertainty to simply stop, to be still, and to remember who God is. And there is great power. There is a balm in Gilead for the weary soul to just stop and reflect on who God is. And so if you're weary, if you're struggling, if your faith is waning, if you're struggling with how do you reconcile the circumstances of life with God working out his sovereign plan, just stop and remember, God, who are you? What does your word say who you are? What does your word proclaim about what you've done? Let me reflect on your works, your person, your character. Man, that bolsters one's faith. And so Jacob whether he realizes it or not, he does that work. He anchors the uncertainty of this situation on God himself, that he is the El Shaddai, God Almighty. He is able. There's great hope in that statement. 
It's here that we see Jacob kind of let go, so to speak. He recognizes that he can no longer grasp on to this situation. It was out of his control. He needed to give it over to the one, El Shaddai, who is able. So friends, have you ever been there before a point of application in the midst of uncertain circumstances? Have you ever wrestled with God for control over a situation? And you finally just released kind of this white knuckle grip on whatever it was that you were just grasping onto with every ounce of effort that you had. And as you released that grip, you let it go at the foot of the cross. I don't know about you, but wow, the the relief, the peace, the weight that is lifted when we simply trust the Lord. When I say simply trust the Lord, that's not some vain, ignorant thing to do. That is a trust that is placed in the character and the work of the Lord, knowing that he is the El Shaddai, knowing that he's the creator of all things. So when I simply just, it's just not let go and let God just, you know, let's sing a song or something. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, we're talking about a, a confident, known choice that we're making to give it over to God. And this is essentially what we see Jacob start to do. Jeremiah chapter 17, a couple verses here that remind us about trusting in the Lord. There's a contrast here. The man who doesn't trust and the man who does. Thus says the Lord, curses the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Wow, what word pictures are present there. But here's the contrast. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like what? A tree that is planted by water that sends out roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Friends, this is what it looks like to simply let go and trust God. Placing our trust, our confidence in God Almighty, the El Shaddai, his word, trusting in the spirit to guide and direct us. So this evening, friends, what are you holding on to? Or even as Judah called out, what in your life are you delaying to trust the Lord with? What do you need to give over to the El Shaddai today, tonight? Those are big questions, friends, that I hope we won't just quickly pass over, but you will continue to meditate on and reflect on even this evening as you uh, transition into another work week. It's God stirring your heart. So participating in God's sovereign plan, one, strengthens our faith. Two, participating in God's sovereign plan, it fortifies our character. Participating in God's sovereign plan, it fortifies our character. The brothers arrive in Egypt now with Benjamin and Joseph sees that his brothers have made good on their word. And this test now is going to continue to evolve as Joseph observes his brothers come back into Egypt. So what does he do? He invites them into his home for a meal. This is, again, a big deal culturally. Hebrews is being Invited in to dine with Egyptians. This would this would have been a rare, if not uh, impossible occurrence. But here we have Joseph inviting them in. Second in command in Egypt is inviting these foreigners, these Hebrews to come in and dine with him for a meal. So the brothers are connecting the dots. This isn't normal. This isn't natural. There's got to be something else going on in Joseph's mind. So look at me in verse number 18. These brothers, of course, think the worst. They assume there's no act of kindness here. There's no olive branch, so to speak. This is 
This is Joseph setting us up for a trap. And they use this strong language that he is going to assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. I mean, it can't get any worse than that. I mean, it's just they're just extremists here going to worst case scenario. Um, it, it just can't get worse. Right. So they're thinking, hey, he's he's. Now gotten our whole family down here. Benjamin's with us. The only reason he's inviting us in to completely uh, take us all captive, just like Simeon. And this word uh, assault um, in the Hebrew carries with it a violent attack. So this wasn't just like, hey, he's going to come in and just kind of say, hey, you guys are being taken captive and now prisoners of of Egypt. No, it was just going to be this violent attack. They're going to be decimated right there in Joseph's home. Take all the possessions. They're foreigners, hundreds of miles away, and they will never see their homeland or their father again. This is where they went with this scenario. So what was supposed to be a simple act of kindness from Joseph to his brothers caused, again, this panic. In an attempt to demonstrate their integrity, they point out the, uh, the issue with the money to this steward of the home. And uh, they make their intentions known that they're willing to make full restitution and more for the situation. And here, it's right here at this moment. And the steward of the house responds that the brothers are starting to learn that God is working. It's in this interaction between this steward of, of Joseph's home and these brothers that they realize that their faith Potentially is being tested and that some things are going on outside of their control and they are now alert and they are aware and they are mindful that they're now active participants in it. They're also learning that the deception, the lying of the past has caused great harm to their lives personally and to their family, their households. And it's here that they're seeing for maybe the first time in 20 plus years that doing the right thing is honored by the Lord. Being honest and transparent, truly being honest men. God is honoring this among them. And friends, I'll note this, although it's not a universal rule, doing the right thing typically places you in a favorable light with our fellow mankind. This is, this is a very simple and most basic and elementary concept for us to understand. Kids, you, can, you got this one right here. Kids, listen up. Doing the right thing. Being transparent. Telling the truth. It is going to place you, not all the times, but in most cases, it's going to place you in, in a favorable light with your fellow friends and authorities that God has placed in your life. So this steward of Joseph's house points out the brother's attention back to their God. I think this is interesting that the steward of the house, I mean, maybe this is just from the testimony of Joseph. Pharaoh pointed out that obviously it was, it was the God of of uh, Jacob and the God of Joseph that gave uh, Joseph the power to interpret these dreams. So uh, those that have been around Joseph, Joseph has not been shy to say, hey, it's not me, it's God. And maybe because of that testimony, this steward of Joseph's household has this testimony. I don't know if Joseph has had some sidebars with this uh, individual in his house and they've discussed the, the God of, of Joseph and the God of his father, Jacob. But regardless, the steward of the house points their attention to their God and to the God of their father, Jacob. It is El Shaddai, God Almighty, who has done this work. What work? That their money has been placed back in their sacks. And the steward of the household gave testimony that he had their money. I had your money, but God placed it back. That's the, uh, the, um, the interpretation of, of the NSB really is, is translated uh, in that way. I, I had your money. Speaking to these previous instances. So in verse 23 is, is the God that has put treasure in your sacks for you. 
But the brothers, their faith would have been strengthened and their character fortified to make good and God honoring decisions as they see the hand of the Lord among them. It gets better. Not only are they not going to be assaulted and taken captive. Not only are they are their donkeys not going to be seized, but they now have reassertion. Peace be with you. You're. Allegations and your assumptions aren't going to come fruition. Not only can they put that in the rearview mirror and out of their mind, but here comes whom? Simeon. So the steward of the house now releases Simeon among them. So here they are in Joseph's household. They were in a panic. They've been reminded to go back to God. He's the one that's done this work. He's put the money back in your sacks. I had your money. It was God that did this. The God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now Simeon is released, and this, I'm sure, would have been a sweet reunion. Again, we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but this has been a big question mark. Is this ruler of Egypt going to honor his word? Is Simeon just going to be killed? Is his life going to be taken? This reunion has come about. Joseph goes above and beyond. He feeds their animals. He washes the brothers' feet. And now the scene is set for this, this second and formal reunion between Joseph and the brothers. So friends, let's remember, participating in God's sovereign plan, it fortifies our character. Have you ever been there? Isn't it just a little bit easier to do the right thing when we are actively walking with the Lord and aware of his plan? Can, can you give testimony to that when you're walking in the spirit, when you're walking with the Lord, when you're in his word, when your relationship is growing? Aren't you more prone to do what? Make the right choice. So participating in God's sovereign plan, it fortifies our character. We're going to be more consistent and more aware of the opportunities to make good and godly choices, to be transparent, to lead with our integrity and to allow the Lord to work in and through our choices. Galatians 5.16 tells us, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. All the way back in chapter 37 and, and, and beyond, these brothers were not walking in awareness of, of God's sovereign plan. They were walking in the reality of the Lord and his will and their household and their family. And so what did they do? They acted out in the desires of their flesh. Friends, it's true, the same is true of us. If we're walking in the spirit, if we're actively engaged in participating in God's sovereign plan, we will not gratify the desires of our flesh. Galatians 6, 9 tells us, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. But friends, there's a sobering reality here that we need to be careful about as we work through this Genesis narrative. That how God worked in this situation isn't necessarily a universal truth. Treasure in our sacks is not always miraculously found when we walk with the Lord and do what is right. This is the lie, the sin, the heresy of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Treasure in our sacks is not always miraculously found when we walk with the Lord and do what is right. So how do we reconcile that? Friends, although we may not have sacks of treasure miraculously found, we have a God that is faithful to us. And although we may not have everything that we want this side of eternity, we have everything that we need for all eternity in Christ Jesus. First Peter chapter number three tells us this verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I love that rhetorical question. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, that's doing right. Sometimes when we do right, when we pursue the sake of righteousness, we are going to suffer. Peter tells us you will be blessed. How is blessing and suffering connected? Let's read on. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with how? Gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you and your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Excuse me, let me read that again. I got a little tongue tied there. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So participating in God's sovereign plan strengthens our faith. It fortifies our character. And our final point, I'll be quick. Participating in God's sovereign plan expands our joy, expands our joy. So in these final few verses of chapter 43, Joseph will once again test his brothers to determine if there truly has been a change in their hearts. So what does he do? He cordially inquires as to the, their welfare and that of their father in verse number 27. And the brothers give a good report. We're good. Father's good. Thumbs up. What happens at the end of verse 27? The brothers give a good report and they once again in fulfillment of the dreams that the Lord gave Joseph at 17 years old, 20 plus years ago, they bow down before him in an act of humility and a desire to honor Joseph. It's here in verse 29. Joseph turns his attention now to whom? To Benjamin. So Joseph now is going to leverage Benjamin in another layer within this test to determine again, are these brothers still consumed with the jealous heart? Are their thoughts, their emotions, their choices, are they all being motivated by what harm for this brother? I'm sure that is propped up in his father's home. They're still getting favoritism. Do they have now a jealous heart towards Benjamin since Joseph had been taken out? So Joseph still has these questions as to the integrity of the brothers. But in the midst of all this, Joseph once again is overcome by emotion when he addresses Benjamin. We saw this in chapter 42. We see it again in chapter 43. This is the first time. Over 22 years that Joseph has laid eyes on his younger brother, Benjamin. He's overcome with emotion. What does he do? He goes out and weeps. He gathers himself. He comes back and orders for the food to be served. His brothers sit according to their birthright. with The oldest closest to Joseph which would have put Benjamin at the end of the line. And despite these cultural nuances, what does Joseph do here? He serves the food and he gives whom? Five times more than all the other brothers. It is the youngest brother sitting the farthest away and the least place of honor at the table. He gives Benjamin five times more of the food that is being served. This again is an obvious test that Joseph uses to gauge the jealous tendencies of the brothers. Do they despise the other favored brother? Now that Joseph was taken care of, had the brothers redirected all that hate, bitterness, and and vengeance back towards Benjamin? What was their responses to the actions of Joseph towards Benjamin? Look at me at verse number 34. It all came together here. Actually, I skipped over it real quick. Don't also forget that Joseph offers a special blessing to Benjamin when he first um, interacts with Benjamin among all the other brothers. It is Benjamin that receives this blessing from, from Joseph. So he gets the extra blessing. He gets the extra food. Are they still jealous? What's, what's their response? Verse 34 at the end. And they drank and were merry with him. It seems somewhat of an 
insignificant or maybe a uh, as quite of a dy- dynamic climax that we would like in our story. But this description of the brother's response to the obvious favoritism that Joseph played forward to his brothers is extremely significant. So it was there that they drank and were merry with him. They were merry with him. Participating in God's sovereign plan expands our joy. Wow, what a, we have a change of heart that is It's just jumping off the page here from what we know about these brothers in previous chapters to where they are now today, sitting with the other brothers in the presence of the second highest in command in Egypt and their youngest brother, Benjamin, the last of this favorite wife, Rachel, of which these other brothers are not a part of. I mean, do you see that, again, we we talk about dysfunctional family. Here it is. It's an opportunity for these brothers to to show their true colors here. But yet, there's a change. We see an expanded joy as they participated in God's sovereign plan. Their joy and even our joy is typically expanded by way of perspective. What would have likely set these brothers off? In their youth, it's now the source of their merry hearts. Yes, Benjamin's here with us. He's, he's safe and he's getting five times more of the food. They're in support of Benjamin getting this blessing. They've arrived in Egypt. They've avoided the assault from, from Joseph that was never going to happen, right? Everything that they thought would go wrong has not gone wrong. It is El Shaddai, God Almighty, has made the way Clear for them. Perspective. Have you ever been there before? You come out of a season of trial and and testing and difficulty and you realize that God used it to shape your life. Your faith is stronger. Your character is fortified. Your joy is simply expanded. This is God's sovereign plan. He desires to use it. Although he doesn't promise ease or comfort, friends, he does promise eternal treasure in heaven and crowns that will all be cast down back at the feet of Jesus as we collectively worship the Lord and stand in awe at this incredible work of redemption that he has done. So we see in these brothers an incredibly, an incredible amount of progress. I'll just say it that way. From the beginning with Judah's impassioned declaration to his father, to their open transparency with the issue with the money, to their mature responses to the favoritism that was shown to Benjamin by way of a blessing and an extra measure of food. These brothers are demonstrating that they are aware of and actively participating in God's sovereign plan. And this could only be done by the work of El Shaddai. So as you wrap this up, this section of testing in the Joseph narrative, it's not quite done. We look forward to yet one more test that Pastor Andy will take us through next week uh, um, as we consider this additional treasure that's going to be found in their sack this time as they journey back home to their father, Jacob, a test for a jealous heart. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for what you've taught us from this chapter. Father, I pray that if there's one thing that we would be aware of as we leave this place, this time of worship, gathering together, I pray that we would be reminded that you are God and that you have a plan and that you um, desire for us to be welcomed into the fold of that plan. And so, Father, I pray that we would not be satisfied with sitting on the sidelines. We would not be satisfied with just sitting on the bench. But Father, we would truly see in your word what you desire of us and from us. And by your grace, we would pursue that, not for our own glory, not so that we could be viewed as some great and mighty Christian. 
Father, but because of of our interactions with this world, because of our good works, as Matthew 5 tells us in verse 16, that others would be pointed back to God the Father. Father, I pray that we, right here at Liberty Hills Bible Church in Kansas City, Missouri, that we would engage in your sovereign plan of redemption in this world. We thank you for what you're going to do in our lives. It's in your precious name, I pray. Amen. Please uh, stand, and our last song is Build My Life. And um, uh, here in the chorus, it kind of converts into a prayer. And uh, really, it's, it's praying kind of this very thing that, uh, um, that God would use us to um, be a part of His plan um, and fulfilling us. Uh, with his heart and leading us um, and his love to those around us. Mm-hmm.